When I interviewed Darnell Phillips in spring of 2019, um, it was actually a hard interview for me to do. This gentle giant of a man who had never been in trouble, uh, was studying to be a minister, was just starting his life as a teenage uh, young man, uh, was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to 107 years in prison. He was released, conditional release, even after he proved his innocence with DNA still restricted in his movements, um, and yet he has not let any of this hold him back. Just this year, he started his dream business, a mobile auto detailing business called Redemption Auto Detailing, LLC. Redemption Auto Detailing, get it? He's a minister. It's incredible. When I heard that name, I almost fell on the floor. Darnell is a pro at taking people's beat-up-looking cars and making them look like brand new. Therefore, redemption auto detailing. And he has, a, he, he has a sort of a joy about the way he goes about life, but also just the way that he approaches his job. And as a result, the business is growing and flourishing. It's in Virginia. Look him up. His Instagram is at darnphil19. That's D-A-R-N-P-H-I-L, the number 19. Follow Darnell and you will be inspired because he is hitting it out of the park he got engaged to a wonderful woman. What can you say about a guy who served almost three decades in prison of a hundred and something year sentence for a crime everybody knew he didn't commit? The victim came forward, everybody came forward, and yet spent not a minute of time feeling sorry for himself and is living his best life. Uh, Darnell, if you're listening, you have all my respect. And for all you wrongful conviction listeners, I'm super excited for you to hear this episode. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly, 11,945 days, okay? 11,945 days I've been in here. And um, it hasn't been easy. A <laughs> hundred years? That's me, I'm a, I'm a kid. I didn't do anything. You know? And, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was real painful, man. You know, because... My life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something. You know, a hundred years, and I had dreams, and I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know. I was a very good young man. That is what happens in so many cases. The cops have a hunch because they're so smart at the scene. They have a hunch. And once they act on that hunch, they sort of develop tunnel vision and they take off marching in the wrong direction. And that happens in so many of these wrongful convictions. They opened the, the, uh, the cell door and I walked downstairs and I actually walked downstairs to, to be outside. It felt very strange um, to be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream, but then again, it wasn't a dream. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me, I'm your host. And today we have Darnell Phillips wrongfully imprisoned for 28 years and only released back on September 25th. Welcome, glad you're here. Thank you. I always say I'm sorry you're here, but I'm happy you're here. And with him, Lisa Spees is here and she runs Virginians for Judicial Reform. And Lisa and I have been working closely together for a while now on some Virginia cases. So I'm glad you're here as well. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. So, Darnell, your case is um, troubling in so many ways. Yes. The fact that you were ever prosecuted for this case doesn't make any sense. And let's go back. I mean, this is a really brutal case. It's a violent rape of a 10-year-old girl. Yeah. White girl. And Darnell is a larger-than-life black male. And uh, we know that cross-racial identifications are incredibly unreliable. But let's not even go there yet. Um, how did this ever come to pass in the first place? You didn't match the description. There's so much misconduct and so many mistakes, both, I think, deliberate and accidental in your case. Yes. But but let's go back to where did this happen? How did this happen? How did you first get wrapped up in it at all? In Virginia Beach in August 1990, I was in the process of trying to do something like you do with music. You know, I was a young guy, you know, you want to make money, you want to try to, you know, go after your dreams. It just so happened to met a young man from New York at the gym where he used to box at. And so I saw that he was interested in music. When I said, well, you know what, I have another friend who goes to Norfolk State, the DJ. We can get together. Maybe we can get this demo. We wanted to try to do it for this rap group called Public Enemy, in the, you know, in the early 90s. And so one of the days that I was over uh, Michael's house, it was raining outside. When the rain began to settle down, we went back outside. We were laughing, just doing things, smoking a cigar. 
just talking futuristic things. You know, we had, man, I would love to, you know, be a, a music producer. And, you know, he's talking about, yeah, I would love to rap. And so when we got, I'm not even 10 steps outside of his house, there was a guy walking by. And he asked, could I have a light? Gave him a light and everything. So we went, walked around the corner. It just so happened, police, they rolled up. And when they rolled up, we were like, well, uh, what's going on, officer? He said, well, young girl had just been raped. We're like, whoa. We said somebody just walked by us. We told him they went that way, back towards a place called Carper Apartments. It was a military housing unit. And so he said, well, will you be around? Because in case we need to talk to you, we said, well, sure. But we really didn't say anything. About 15 minutes later, the officer came back through. He spoke with us. I was 18, Michael was 16. Spoke with Michael about, you know, where had he been? And But Michael really didn't fit the description. So I was like, well, he's been with me, so there's no way in the world he could have been doing a type of crime. I had on all brown and black. They were looking for a man that had great shorts on, white and green with the number 42 on the jersey. So, you know, obviously I didn't fit the description. I wasn't the person's height or anything, but nevertheless, they said, well, can you try this hat on? But I was like, well, I didn't want us to try a hat on or whatever, right? I had a hat, I guess, similar to the person who did the crime. It's like a Chicago Bulls hat. So Michael put the hat on. They snapped the picture. Then they asked me willingly. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I put the hat on, and they snapped the picture. Uh, the officer, he drove me home that night. That Friday, I was arrested. And when I was arrested, they didn't tell me what I was arrested for. And it took some hours, got down to the police station and spoke to a few uh, detectives, you know, for like four hours probably. Then there was another detective came in, you know, unlike the other ones. And I grew up around police officers. You know, they were kind to us. Then they come through the neighborhood. We would speak with them. And when I spoke to the detective, he automatically started just belittling me. He called Mucha, uh, uh, you know, you did the crime. I'm like, well, what are you trying to you trying to damage my life, man? You know, I, like you're trying to hurt me. What are you doing? And so he just kept getting in my face and arguing at me and trying to get me to confess. He was trying to lead me on with questions. Well, I was smart enough, even though I was 18 years old, I was smart enough to know that he was trying to pull me into a trap. I said, look, man, um, I said, I don't, I don't know what your situation is, but look, you, you got the wrong man. I said, I have alibis and everything. Why, why are you doing this? He just said, well, look, you told me something. I said, I didn't tell you anything. I said, well, I'm not going to sign anything. <laughs> I said, you know, I didn't know. I said, I'm not signing anything. He's like, well, he said, it doesn't make any difference. He said, who you think they're going to believe uh, me over you? He said, I'll take that young girl. He said, when I put in pigtails and they'll look at you like an animal. I said, why are you doing so me? I put my head down because I said, I just want to go home, man, my family, you know. And he told me, he said, well, you're never going home. And so that right there, it, it broke my heart. But nevertheless, I still didn't wouldn't give him what he wanted. He wanted me to just outright tell him I did it. I said, man, I, I just can't do that, man. And after that, I was in jail that was early Saturday morning. That Monday, I went to court. Next, you know, I'm hearing I confessed and <laughs> uh, I had brutally raped this girl. And and so I'm, I'm caught up like, what? Because I had an alibi witness. I had a preacher's wife. She was in the house. Her son, a guy named uh, Michael Norfleet, and a host of other guys who saw me that day. They knew that I had on all brown and black. I hadn't been outside. And so I was befuddled because the only move I made that day was to get to his house, stay in his house. And when we saw the police later on, that was it. Well, Lisa, there were all these signs. I mean, they weren't just ignored. They were... I mean, his rights were trampled on. We know that because, I mean, when you get an officer actually lying about a confession, we know about false confessions. This wasn't even that. This was a non-confession that they then just made up a story. He told you he was going to do it and he did do it, right? Which is interesting, too, because he actually told you up front, here's what I'm going to do to you. 
what would anybody feel in that situation other than why are you doing this to me? I'm not that guy. Like it's such a horrifying scenario. And especially like you said, as you did, as, as I did, I'm sure as Lisa did, we all grow up respecting authority figures, respecting the uniform. We know that they're there to serve and protect and uh, that they're the people you call if you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, they're the people that are trying to put you in trouble. So, Lisa, help me out here because this, this is a bad one. Well, I don't know how much I can help you out with it. I mean, it reminds me of so many other cases that we've heard about, the Central Park Five and Jeff Deskovic and Andy Kreevac. And I think the difference is that Darnell had the state of mind at the time that he just was not going to give a false confession. And clearly that officer knew that and he didn't care and he was going to say that he did it anyway. And that's, you know, the story that they continue to say that Darnell confessed and that's what they've stuck to for 28 years. So even the recent court decision, it, it still continues to state that, you know, Darnell confessed, which we just know is patently false. Yeah, we're going to get to that later because there's a whole long tail on the story, right? You know, he's still being persecuted by the state even after having been proven innocent and even after the victim coming forward repeatedly and really begging the authorities to reverse this and realizing that she had made a mistake. And we can get into that too and how she was really coerced into implicating you. Obviously, when someone endures a traumatic experience, which hers can't be more traumatic than what this poor Mm -hmm. girl went through, uh, they're going to be prone to misidentifying someone or Mm -hmm. making mistakes, even if everybody does their job the way they're supposed to. That's not what happened here. But what they're probably not going to make a mistake on is identifying the color of the clothes. Right. Facial characteristics, mm-hmm. height. Right. She's not sitting there with a, you know, a graph to be able to show how tall you are, or how much you weigh. They could be off by 20, 30, 50 pounds even. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But they're not going to make a mistake on the color of the clothes. Not that big of a mistake. No. It's not like it was gray or, you know, light black or, you know what I mean? Like you were wearing completely different clothes. Brown and black paisley. Black pants, brown and black paisley shirt, Chicago Bulls hat. The person they were looking at had a white and green jersey with the numbers 42. Uh, she described that person as being a little older, out of shape at the time. I used to run every morning. So I was like 170 pounds. I used to train with my cousin, you know, uh, go boxing and everything. So, you know, I, I was slim and trim, you know. <laughs> and the sad part about it was that that same brown and black garment, they paraded it around in court as if that was a white and green shirt, as if that implicated me with guilt. And I'm like, are they seeing this? The jury, I'm like, are you seeing this? This is a brown and black shirt. They look for someone with white and green. This is not like that thing that went around on the internet a while ago where it was, is the dress uh, gold or is it blue, right? And it was this whole, this is not that. This no. is cut and dried. Anybody with eyes can tell the difference between those colors. It's not tricky. But speaking of tricky, I mean, the only word I can think of for it is disgusting on a number of levels, which is what they did to influence this young girl to implicate you. Right. They were willing to go to extreme lengths to, let's just call it, get this case off their desk. Lisa, can you talk about some of the things that they did to influence this young girl who was so impressionable at this point and so damaged and so upset? So the victim in this case was a 10-year-old female who had been brutally sexually assaulted. She could not identify anyone when they came to speak with her. And they influenced her by telling her that Darnell had, in fact, confessed, but that they couldn't use the confession against him. They told her that her blood was found on Darnell's underwear. They told her that Darnell had committed similar crimes and been in trouble in the past, all of which were absolutely false. And they told her this to influence her to give an identification of Darnell to maintain the charge, but and also to get a conviction in a trial. Yeah, I mean, disgusting, I don't even think begins to cover doing that to someone. Because not only are you doing this to Darnell, who they knew was innocent, it's not a mistake, it's not an innocent mistake in this case, they knew he was innocent. 
And it's not just leaving a predator on the street who's most likely going to commit another crime like this. But you're also committing a fraud on a 10-year-old victim who was sexually assaulted and her family who all had to go through that. And then 28 years later, she finds out that it's all been a lie. And think about what kind of wrapping your mind around that would do to you after going through that kind of an experience as a child and now having to wrap your mind around that, you know, you are part of this fraud as well. I mean, unknowingly, didn't do anything wrong on her own. She was told this. And and of course, we all believe the police. When you're 10 and you go through something like that, all of us would believe that. And when it comes to the girl, I was getting the chills while you were talking because I was thinking, who's to say that this guy who's still out on the streets wasn't going to go back and rape her again, right? Mm. She was in danger. And look, maybe they couldn't have caught him anyway. Maybe he had disappeared into thin air or gone to Canada or who knows, right? But if he was around, there was a way to find him. I mean, this is Virginia Beach, too. This is not a tiny little town. They have, you know, resources, right? Mm -hmm. They have trained professionals that could have gone and done the, the hard work to go find this guy. Well, the tourism industry in Virginia Beach is very strong, as well as the military community. And I think for both of those things, you know, you would want to find the actual perpetrator rather than just lock somebody up. And well, like you said, get the, get the file off their desk. And give the public the false impression that everything's safe now and you can go out and, and do your thing. When in fact, they should have been telling people to keep a careful eye on their kids while we're continuing this investigation. Don't let them go anywhere by themselves. I'm sure kids were just right back to riding their bikes and doing whatever they did in Virginia Beach back then uh, 28 years ago. Mm. Darnell, let's talk about the trial. There you are with alibi witnesses, credible alibi witnesses. As you said, the preacher's daughter and this and that and like your friends and you had an almost airtight case. How long were you in jail awaiting trial? I stayed in jail for like five months, and um, I made bond. Here's how far the injustice goes, Jason. When I was in jail, my lawyer told me, he said, Darnell, look, you don't have a record, and there are certain things in this case that he said don't line up. He said, but they have to give you a record. I said, give me a record, like what? He said, they're going to open a book up on you. They're going to give you a robbery charge. I said, a robbery charge? So they had gave me, it was two cases, but because this rape charge was so heavy, they gave me a robbery charge when I had witnesses. I was at work. I couldn't have been there, right? I didn't drive at the time, Jason. So, so mm-hmm. they invented a prior robbery just so yeah, they could just so, to so, give me a criminal record. So they had an open robbery case. Yeah, and they just decided. He they told were, me they were going to dump it, and they and they gave a description of the man at the time. You know, when I saw the guy on the photos, I saw it was like he was like a larger, lighter skinned guy, he had bald head at the time. In my ID picture, I had full head of hair. You know, this summertime, I was, you know, uh, dark brown. So they had like a surveillance photo of the guy or something yeah, like that? Yeah, but the guy had an earring in his ear. He, now, here's the thing about it. I had an earring in my ear when I was 14. It became infected because my brother friend did it. But by the time trial came along, four years later, they, the victim had said the guy had an earring. But a plastic surgeon came and told him that there's no way in the world his ear could have been open at that time. He said, this is a fully healed ear. He said, it's no way in the world possible. And so I didn't look like the guy. I had alibi witnesses. So they give me another false charge. But the other case, I was facing three life sentences in 30 years. So really, I wasn't thinking about that too much, right? And so they were just pretty much dumping everything on me. So when I got out on bond, man, uh, I was a very fearful person because my outlook on the police officers, they weren't the same anymore. 
It's a good thing they caught the guy that killed Abe Lincoln. They might have tried to pin that on you, too. You know what I mean? Take with him and like, yeah, you know, we got an open case here. That was this guy. Were you in the theater back in 1860, whatever? And you'd be like, no. Go, yeah, this guy. This is the guy right here. You know what I mean? We can laugh about it now. Well, you're laughing about it, but like it's actually, it's preposterous. So back to the trial. So I got out on uh, bond November the 5th, 1990. I went to trial in, in June 1990. I saw my first day. My, my lawyer told me to go to the back of the courtroom. I was like, well, why are you telling me to go to the back of the courtroom for? They saw the prosecutor walking the victim down the aisle, and they stopped on my aisle. And she didn't, she didn't point me out, but what she did, she stopped by my aisle. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? But later on, we found out that they coached her. She said that they coached her that, look, he's going to be sitting at that table. This is what he got on. Don't change the story. So she was coached not only by police officers, she was coached by prosecutors. Came time for trial to, you know, the victim pointed me out from that. I found that out maybe like a year ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> so keep in mind, 27 years passed and I'm finding this out. I'm like, that's what's going on. Because I was often puzzled, why did they just stop her where the role I was at? Right? And so I said, that's why the prosecutors did that. Were there any rumors around, uh, because you were out for this period of time before the trial, were there rumors around the neighborhood about somebody else that might have done it? Yeah. The name was mentioned by uh, one of the victim's family friends, as well as, uh, I believe, the victim's father about some man named Omar. Because one of the victim's friends, she said that when she was walking on the path and saw the girl with the bike, she said she saw, also saw a guy with a black hat very popular, Michael, like a bull's hat at the time. You know, he was twirling in his hands, and she said he had on similar type clothing, you know, like white and green and stuff. She said, well, he was twirling the hat, and then when she looked, he just took off running. And she said, oh, that looked just like Omar. In court, when I heard that, I said, okay, well, evidently, maybe, you know, they'll find this Omar guy, so I'll be in the clear. But they never really looked for Omar, <laughs> you know, so... They weren't really interested in Omar. No, they weren't interested in Omar. They were interested in Darnell. <laughs> but at that point, and also, it's important to remember that not only was there misconduct by the police in Darnell's original questioning, but there was continued misconduct by pointing Darnell out to the victim in the courtroom and coaching her and telling her these false things about Darnell from the first place. So really from the start, throughout the trial with the prosecutors, there was continued shenanigans to nail it on him. And I don't really think they were interested in anybody else. Clearly they weren't interested but in But they clearly else. knew that he didn't do it too. Because if, if he did it, you don't have to go about it this way. That's true. I mean, we do have, obviously, cases of tunnel vision where you have prosecutors and police who believe that they have the right guy and then they just sort of... You know, they get into this sort of vortex where they shape and shift the narrative in order to fit what they believe to be true. And that's a thing that happens. This doesn't seem like that was the case at all. They knew you didn't confess. They knew you weren't wearing the right clothes. They knew you had an alibi. They knew you had never been in trouble. There was not one little thing that would have indicated to anybody that it was actually you. So this cannot be swept under the rug and, and called a, you know, a mistake and in a case of tunnel vision, because that's clearly not what it was. I mean, what this was was a lynching, for lack of a better word. And so you go to trial. How long did the trial last? Three-day trial. Did you testify? Yes, I did. And what was that like? Well, to me, uh, 18, you know, you don't have the same verbiage as, you know, mature prosecutor, you know. And so even though you can stand your grounds, 
you really can't protect yourself because you don't know any of the legal terminology. Tricks, and yeah. so every time you, you're trying to say, no, I, I was here with my friend. Well, this and that. And it, it didn't trick me up. I just couldn't express myself as well as I can now because, you know, the 18-year-old Donnell and the 47-year-old Donnell, there's a, there's a large difference, you know. And so to me, it was horrifying because I'm like, <laughs> can't, they, can't they see what's going on? I mean, they're about to take my life. I said, they're not considering this. And I'm looking at the prosecutors and they were dead set on me going to prison for the rest of my life. I'm looking at the police officer. I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at them fabricating a story because I know I was in the house that day. And so I couldn't have been out raping someone. I was trying to tell them this, what I was watching on TV. If you go back and look at this on TV, you'll see I'm correct. There's no way I know where I could have been on the crime scene if I'm watching TV. I was trying to tell them about my friend's mother. She had told them, but they would not let her testify in court because at that moment she had brain cancer and the months that I was out, she began to lose her sight. But she said she still remember <laughs> that man did not have on white and green. That man had on all brown and black and he was right here on this couch with me. So they never let her testify. That day to me, it, it was horrible. You know, I didn't have a juror of my peers. You know, I think the closest I they came to a drill of my peers was a person that was, she was probably about 28. I don't know whether she was Chinese. I don't, I don't know what she was, but. No black people on the jury? Nah. Oh, boy. You know, and it's, so. It, you know, I had lunch the other day with a friend of mine who's uh, doing great things in criminal justice mm. reform. And, and she was telling me before she became this reformer, you know, now I don't think anybody would put her on a jury, but she was on a jury. And she said she was on this case, and uh, it was a serious criminal case. And she said the third day of deliberations, the jurors started saying, you know what, I really don't care anymore. Whether the guy's guilty or not, I'm going home. Like I've had it. Like I can't. I got things to do. I can't be bothered with this anymore. Like people were just breaking down. All right, guilty. You know what I mean? Like people were just caving. And I'm making that point because I don't know what went on in your jury room, but after three days, you know, you could kind of understand how jurors could become so stressed out, and everybody wants to go home. But I think when you're listening to Darnell and you hear the pain, and you know that he's just one of of millions that have gone through this, so many of whom are innocent. You know, I'm just asking people to keep that in mind when you're in that jury room, and it, it's an inconvenience. You know what? We got to work together to prevent these things from happening, and it's not going to happen if people are going to be susceptible to their own personal needs at a time when they hold somebody's life in their hands, as it was in your case. Because I got to believe that there were jurors in that room that were sitting there going, wait a minute, though. The color, the thing didn't match the description, the this, the that. I mean... You know, because there was no forensic evidence. I mean, they made up a story about a hair, right? One hair on a blanket, right? That was another thing, right? They said the man, he's 80-something now, but he told them, well, you know, that was what they call junk science. But at the time, he said that it had like 14 particulars that kind of, they were similar to mine. But when they tested it in 2001, it shows it wasn't mine at all. As a matter of fact, whoever it was, their mother had, some Caucasian. It was a mine. The man from the Department of Defense, they tested it. Yeah, so there was junk science involved yeah. on top of all the other stuff. Because yeah. that was the only physical evidence was one hair on a blanket that was found with the girl, near the girl, which, of course, now we know wasn't your hair anyway. So if they needed another story to make up, there, there it was. And how long did the jury deliberate? Deliberated like three days. On the third day of the trial, about 8 o'clock at night, they rendered the decision. When they told me, you know, guilty, I'm like, guilty? I, I'm, I know what guilty means, but I'm thinking they made a mistake because how could you incarcerate somebody who's innocent? And so I'm thinking that maybe I didn't hear this right. 
and they were reading off the jurors, you know, uh, suggestions. And, you know, I'm looking at my lawyer. I'm saying, so am I going home tonight? And he looks at me, he said, he said, no. I'm like, what's going on? You know, he's like, man, he said, you're going to prison, man. I said, I'm going to prison. Man told him I was facing 107 years. Wow. What they did, they gave me 100 years, right? And then with that robbery, they gave me a seven-year sentence. Yeah, 100, 100 years at the time, you know? And I'm like, 100 years? I said, man, I'm a kid. I didn't do anything. That was real painful, man. You know, because my life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something, you know? You know, 100 years, and I had dreams, and I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know? I was a very good young man. I just wanted to help people with my life. And here they are, they want to take my life. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story. 
which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So there you go to prison. You're stuck there for decades. And as you said, you were a young man with dreams and hopes like anybody would be at 18. How did you manage to never lose hope in this situation? You know, I was a person, you know, I had just came into my faith. And I said, you know, regardless of how long I have to stay there, I said, I'm not going to allow that place to cause me to succumb to its environment. The court system had already failed me, so, and I just believed that one day the truth will come out, you know. That's just something that was a, a conviction in me. Outside of that, the only thing that got me through my faith, man, I'm going to be honest with you, right? You know, reading the Bible and studying and praying and because I wanted to go into ministry. So I studied for that because I wanted to help people. And so I said, well, if I can't help people on the outside, I can help people on the inside. And so that's what I started doing, teaching and preaching and, and writing. You know, I said, wrote uh, several manuscripts for books. Just teaching myself a lot of things, man. Studying business. I studied law because I did some of the pro se on my own case before. I worked. You know, I, I did everything I, I could, man, to keep my head above waters, man. But mostly, I would say my faith, man, and helping people, man. I, I found relief in helping others, you know, because everything else, man, it, it had failed me. So, ultimately, we know now that you're here. This is the good part of the story. Yes, it is. How did you first get in touch with the Virginia Innocence Project? What did that mean to you when they agreed to represent you? And then how did things develop from there? Well, I was a teacher's aide at Southampton Correctional Center for several years. And I had a boss there that he sent something to uh, the New York Innocence Project because he said my behavior was kind of strange. He said I kind of stood out for the other inmates. And he said, you don't belong here. He said, something wrong. With that. And so I broke down and I told him the story. And he said, Donna, he said, I put something into the New York Innocence Project. He said, I don't know whether or not they got it. He said, but I put it in. And so several years later, I was at Green Rock Correctional Center. I think New York had sent me back some paperwork, said that they were opening up a Virginia chapter of the Innocence Project. And so uh, one of the students came and visited me. This was right after my father had died in 2009. You know, they visited me and told me, he said, man, I don't know whether or not I'll be able to help you before I leave. He said, but I'm going to give you my best shot, try to get you out of there before I graduate. I said, that's, that's cool. So I met that one student. He graduated. I hadn't heard anything for, you know, several years. And so finally, my older sister, one morning, she said, you know what? I have to do something. So she drove up. She had never been to Charlottesville. She drove up to Charlottesville and she had my paperwork. When she went there, she didn't know whether or not the university was open or what. But she asked, uh, when would the, that was Deirdre Enright, when when, when she be there? So she brought in, you know, the boxes and everything. And ultimately, Innocence Project, they really started looking more intent. One thing that touched me, I'm going to tell you what touched me. Jennifer Gibbons had told me, she said, you know, Darnell, uh, even if we don't find DNA, you know, because they were looking for DNA, they said they couldn't find any DNA because the prosecutors said it had been destroyed in 2005. So she said, you know, we're going to fight this even if we don't find DNA. I finally felt like I was being heard. I went through so many decades without being heard, and now finally I didn't know how to take it. Someone talking to you like a human. They give them the time and the energy. When they talk to me, they were very kind. 
And so I'm like, man, I said, I'm, I'm actually going to get some help now. I had been praying about this for years. I said, man, I'm really going to get some help. Like I said, I, I have to give it up to the Innocent Project. You know, they were more than lawyers. They were like family to me. Well, they were lawyers. They were family. They were also private investigators. So. They were doing. Yes, they do. They started looking around, combing around for evidence. And in 2016, they had found some evidence, you know, and I'm like, OK, now let's see what this DNA going to show up and clear me. You know, I had no problem testing it because I knew I didn't do anything. So they went, tried to get it tested, the clothing, because some of the other stuff had been destroyed, uh, deliberately, in my opinion. They tested it. They said that Virginia couldn't find anything. So they went to an external lab. And that lab in California, they found some DNA. And, 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 and let's not skip over too quickly the fact that as if they hadn't done enough, they also lied to you about the existence of the evidence, right? They yeah. covered it up. For a decade. For a decade, they said there's no evidence, but there was evidence. And we've seen this again and again in Alan Newton's case, Kurt Bloodsworth's case, so many cases where they, they say the evidence is not here, but it's here. Somebody just has to go look for it, but they just keep moving the goalposts and trying to hope that the maybe they try to get the lawyers to give up. I, I mean, every time I try to figure it out or understand it, I, I just I don't understand why they... Why would anybody not want to get to the truth, except for they want to protect somebody's reputation? And this goes on, and it's still going on to this day in your case, which, you know, hopefully it will get resolved because we know now that you're out, but you're still not even really free. So that's another thing that has to get addressed, and we're going to get to that part of the story. So they found the DNA. They got it tested in California. Mm -hmm. How did you find out that the results came back that showed that you weren't the guy? I was on the ballpark because this was like the third go-round because as Virginia tested it, they couldn't find anything. But the guy in California, he said he tested right where they were testing, and he found it. <laughs> I'm like, how does, that, how does that work? Because Virginia's, they're very flawed. They're very behind on technology when it comes to DNA. But yet when you present it to the courtrooms, they don't want to receive it because it's not from Virginia. But yet Virginia, they have a very flawed forensic science uh, laboratory. You know, I have to say that because if it wasn't, you know, I wouldn't be here years later. So I was outside on the yard. Uh, an officer told me, look, um, someone wants to talk to you. So I, I called my lawyer. So when I talked to him, Deirdre Enright asked me, she said, Darnell, you, you sitting down? I said, well, what is it, Deirdre? She said, are you sitting down? I'm like, I said, yeah, yeah. She said, a man called from the laboratory in California. He said it wasn't yours. And they said, now here's something that people get confused about. Whoever it was in the DNA had three markers similar to mine. Scientifically, one in 10 African-American men have three markers of the same. But then when you get to the rest of the markers, it shows, oh, this is a totally different person. One in 23 individuals have the same three markers. And so the man told them that when you look on the outside, he said, you see the person had similar markers, three. But when you get to the rest of them to which they didn't want to test, he said, it shows you it's not Darnell. He said, it's not him. It's not him. So these labs outside of Virginia, they saw the truth. But when we brought it back over Virginia side, they didn't want to process it because they didn't do it. So... Go figure, <laughs> go figure, man. I, you know. I didn't know that science uh, only worked inside of state lines. You know, science is science. Unfortunately, you know, uh, no one really pushed that law yet, you know, pushed it through, man. But, you know, you have a lot of innocent guys being overlooked 
they have proof, but because sometimes the labs didn't come through Virginia, the testing didn't come through Virginia, they just can't get anything done. And some of these guys I talked to Saturday, I said, it's beautiful you're calling me because uh, I'm going to New York. I said, man, you know, I, I can never forget you and, I, and I'm not going to forget you. You know, I said, I wish I was totally clear, man. I can really do some things to help you, you know, but like I say, you know, unfortunately, I'm not in that position yet, but. Um, which is an interesting thing because you were paroled without admitting guilt, which almost never happens. And I know the audience is probably thinking, wait a minute, but now the DNA, wouldn't the case just be overturned and thrown out? But they still fought that. And you had to go out sort of through the almost through the back door, so to speak, right? By getting paroled, but still being forced to register and, you know, be punished again on the outside because, in your case, Virginia just doesn't want to admit that they're wrong. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. 
as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What we were talking about before, which is so profound, is the victim herself, right, who's now a grown woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is 28 years ago, so she's 38, 39 years old. Mm -hmm. And talk about what her advocacy for you has meant and how they have prevented her. Like, she wanted to actually come and greet you and hug you and apologize or whatever it was that was on her mind as you were coming out the prison gates. And they wouldn't even allow her to do that. She had requested it because she was the one who went and testified on my behalf. You know, once my lawyers, of course, I've never spoken to her outside of that at all, but my lawyers, when they talk to her. She's like, well, look, you know, I want to do whatever I can to help get Darnell exonerated. She went to the parole board herself. So she, she asked my lawyers, she said, well, you know, can I go and see Darnell? Or they're like, well, you know, can't do that because, you know, like I said, the, the system, you know, she still want to meet me to this day. I can't meet her. I don't know, man. I appreciate her because, you know, she could have kept it in her mind. She could have went to a grave with it. But she was, she was a bold woman. I, to me, that was a profound because she's done more than a lot of times than many of the legal people have done for me. You know, because she came forth with the truth. She filled in a lot of blanks that I didn't know, my lawyers didn't know, as to why things were going on, you know, like an undercurrent. And she filled them blanks in. So for that, I'll ever be grateful to her. And so you walked out of prison mm-hmm. after 28 years. Well, I was ecstatic then, Jason, because, one, <laughs> you know you're, you're an ambitious man. Lisa, you're a very ambitious woman. You know, you had an opportunity to, to work in your passions. Well, me... Even though a lot of times I worked in my passion in prison, now I'm like, I can finally come out and do this. Because those fires never died in me. And so I'm like, man, I'm going to be able to do this now. That's, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to feel like I, what my purpose was. That was going to ministry, to get into business, to marry my fiance who had been with me for 18 years, fighting alongside me. I'm like, man, I'm going to be able to get married. And I'm going to be able to go into ministry. I'm going to be able to start a business. I'm going to be able to be around my mother. And to close that chapter of my life, so to speak. What is it like now? Like, how's your day-to-day? You've been out for four months. Mm -hmm. Now, when people do recognize me, they're very empathetic, you know, sympathetic towards me. But when it comes time to work now, like, keep in mind, like I'm 47 years old, man. Pretty much have to start like a person who's 16 years old. (laughs) The jobs I go for, I go for, like, sales jobs or I go for any other type of job. You know, I'm broke it down to warehouse or whatever. I just wanted some employment. Sometimes, even though they're not supposed to discriminate, and even though they believe you, and even though they tell me, yeah, I recognize your case. But one of the jobs I had went to, the man said, you know, he said, man, you have to be cleared. When I do the background check, he said, you have to be cleared for this job. He said, I understand your situation, but you have to be cleared. And so that, I couldn't get the job. Personally, I understood because I know that he has to represent his business. But in my heart and mind, I'm like, man, I'm still paying for something I didn't do. So I have to depend on other people for money when that is not my nature at all. All I want to do is be able to provide for myself, get married, you know, get a vehicle. I have to depend on people for rides because I can't even get a cheap vehicle. 
And so even though I'm glad to be out, you know, I'm, I'm grateful, but I still have to suffer day to day. I, I want to start my own business. I want to start all the detailing business. But if I could work, I could get the little money that it costs, a little $6,000. That shouldn't be a struggle. But <laughs> you can't work, so you can't get the money. And so I'm not a criminal, so I, I'm not going to commit crimes. I'm, I'm not going to sell drugs. I'm not going to rob. That's not my nature. The only thing I can do, man, is pray, man, look for opportunity to come, man. People that are listening, maybe they live in or know about opportunities in, in the area, Virginia Beach area. How would they uh, contact you? Do you have a, a website or an email address or something like that you want to share? I have an email, uh, D-A-R-N-P-H-I-L-19 at yahoo.com. Darn Phil, D-A-R-N-P-H-I-L-19, the number 19, mm-hmm. at yahoo.com if people want to reach out to you for speaking gigs maybe or anything else like that. We actually set up a GoFundMe to try to give him more opportunities now, you know, in the meantime of being fully exonerated. How do people access the GoFundMe? So they can Google Darnell Phillips GoFundMe or they can go to the website v4jr.org. And there's a link on our website to the GoFundMe account. V, as in Victor, the number four, jr.org. Or they can look us up, Virginians for Judicial Reform, on Facebook. And there are links to it on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. So before we wrap up, my question for you is, mm-hmm. are you bitter? No. I'm going to be honest with you, Jason, that, that would sound crazy. But when I said that I would let that place. I wouldn't let this situation change me. I meant that. I vowed that to myself and I vowed it to God. I said I would not allow that to change me because it will make me like them, you know, and I'm not talking about inmates. <laughs> it, it will make me like the wickedness that people perform to get me in there, you know. So I'm not bitter. I did not like what happened to me, but I'm not bitter because the people I met, the experiences I went through, Outside of the legal system now, the individuals I met, it opened my eyes up to, you know, that their cause is bigger than myself. And my only thing is, how do I get involved to help them? You know, because it's all about helping people. It's all about helping people get to the next level in their life, you know. And you have to live your life or cause outside of yourself, you know. Like, like you, you know, you, you're a great producer, but you find the time to help guys in situations like mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's two different things, but nevertheless, that's a passion of yours. You know what I mean? That's a godsend for guys like me, man. You don't really know how, how strongly, you know, you affect us, man. You really affect us to a degree, man, to our core, because you actually hear guys. You actually take the time out. I remember when I called you on the phone, I was shocked. I thought I was going to get a secretary or something. I said, God, this guy answered his phone. <laughs> I mean, for real. <laughs> I said, he, this guy answered his phone. I said, this guy care for real. And so you don't find many people like you, man. So I would just say, man, continue what you're doing, man. You know, and, and, and prayerfully one day, man, I'll be able to help people just like that. You definitely will. And, you know, for me, it's a, a duty, but also a privilege to be able to be around people like yourself who have been to hell and back and come out with a smile on your face and a bounce in your step. It's an unbelievable thing. I mean, it's really a selfish thing that I do, you know, because it makes my life better. You know, knowing you, people like Lisa that are involved in the fight, uh, the other exonerees, they're really the finest people that I've had the chance to come across. Uh, most of them are exonerees. It's mm. crazy. So I don't, I don't really understand it, but it is what it is. So um, this is the part of the show, which is my favorite part of the show, because this is the part of the show where I get to stop talking <laughs> and listen. And, uh, you know, first of all, I want to thank 
both of you for coming. It's been an honor for me to tape this show with you. So thanks again, Darnell Phillips, for coming in and sharing your thoughts. Thank you for inviting me. And Lisa Spees, keep fighting the good fight. Um, you know, we'll keep working together. And the wins are few and far between. And the frustrations are a lot, but we just keep fighting. So, But the wins are worth it. That's right. So now I'm going to turn it over to you just for some brief final thoughts. Um, Lisa, you can go first because we're going to save the best for last. Well, thank you for having me. I think Darnell's case is just kind of interesting to me because I learned about him from another wrongfully convicted person that's still in prison. And when I would email with Darnell, his emails to me while he was still in prison were so like uplifting and it just was like a breath of fresh air into my day. So seeing him be on the outside and meeting him in person Mm. today was an incredible experience. We have some real problems with the criminal justice system in Virginia. Um, We don't have parole. Juries recommend sentences. The way our writ of actual innocence is designed is, you know, to kind of circumvent actual justice. Ignoring DNA evidence because it didn't come from a Virginia lab is wrong. And so, you know, we would love for more people to get involved. And I know Darnell wants to get involved in trying to change the system there to uh, truly seek out justice for all of us and make it better. So thanks for having me. What I would like to say, I would like to speak to those who are presently incarcerated, you know, if they can hear me, that there is always hope, you know, never give up, you know, never uh, let go your dream of being released from prison, especially for the false incarcerated. Know that there are groups and people who will hear you, can hear you and can feel what you're feeling. From one innocent man to another, I said, man, keep your faith. Don't give up. This is 28 years later. As long as we have good people like the Innocence Project, Jason Flom, Lisa Spees, these people are out here to help us. So don't give up, you know. Sometimes it's easy, to, you know, to stop writing people, to just succumb to the system. You know, figuring, you know, you're losing hope and figuring that, hey, look, no one wants to hear. No one wants to uh, get involved in my situation. Don't fall prey to the lie. Reach out. There's someone who will help you. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction, and uh, tune in next week. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.